I see you hear me? Yes. Very good. Okay, great. Just got the kids out of the house and took the dog for a walk. And now it's just me in the house. <laughs> Hi, I'm Cyril, your host, and welcome to my podcast that I called, I Really Want to Do This. In this podcast, I interview guests from all walks of life and try to understand the various ways that different types of people with different backgrounds and experiences succeed in achieving their goals in their very own ways. Think of the past 10 years in your own life. Have you had a personal goal, an objective, maybe you call it a dream? of doing this one thing. You really want to do that one thing, whatever it may be, but for some reason, you never succeeded in making it actually happen. Well, by showcasing successful achievers and asking them how they did it, I sincerely hope that this podcast will give you some ideas and maybe answers on where to start, how to proceed, in order to actually do that one thing that you really want to do. Hi everyone, this is Cyril. Today we have a great guest. His name is Clark and uh, thank you for being on the podcast, Clark. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Cyril. Oh, thank you. I uh, can't wait to get to know you because I've seen some things online about you and like you're a big traveler you've been like wow this guy I want his life <laughs> so, <laughs> oh i i think that people that can actually live the life of their dreams is is so inspiring it's hard to do but uh so it looks like you're doing you're doing it so uh why don't you start by telling who you are where where you where you live where were you born and 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 tell us about between the moment you were born and now where have you all been like traveling yeah. and stuff? Sure. So, uh, name is Clark Catula. Um, I currently live here in the San Francisco Bay Area, up in Marin County, in San Rafael. But I was born in actually in North Carolina, um, and I was born in. My father was a career army officer. He was a, an infantry officer in the, the U.S. Army. Um, his father was a career Navy officer. So I come from a, a military family. And so I was born in North Carolina and outside of Charlotte. And then he was stationed at uh, Fort Bragg in North Carolina, which is a very kind of a lot of things happening on that base and, and during the 80s and the Cold War. So I grew up around that. He was always on different employments. I'd often um, I wouldn't know where my dad was going, but I could see his equipment load out in the garage of like Arctic gear and like, you know, wow. sand colored camouflage. And he'd be off on stuff that we couldn't really, really know about. And so that was my influence at a young age. My dad was always off on these like great adventures. You know what I mean? He would come back from places around the world and um, tell wow. us stories that, you know, he could tell us. And then um, kind of drastically, um, and there was a kind of funny story behind it, but we moved out to California. He was transferred out to Fort Ord, California, um, which is kind of near Monterey Carmel area. Mm -hmm. uh, that was when I was in second grade. So we moved back out to California and um, he finished out his army career there. So I grew up on the central coast of California and I was spent a lot of time you know, on the beach, skimboarding and surfing and being in the water. And then he, uh, he retired from the army um, and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. He you know, went into the civilian world and uh, that's where I went to elementary school and high school was in Atlanta. Um, and that was probably the most kind of pivotal time period of my life of figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, and we, one thing that my, I'd say more than anything, what my parents instilled in me growing up was obviously, you know, my dad always wanted to be an army officer since he was a little kid. That's what he wanted to do. And he did that. Um, he wanted to serve in combat and he, you know, did a tour in Vietnam and, and did all that stuff. Um, and part of that was he wanted the adventure of that lifestyle, the camaraderie with people. Um, but he really liked to travel. I mean, he grew up as a, as a Navy kid. So he lived all around the Pacific Rim. And so they really instilled the, the value and travel of me in a very young age. And uh, we traveled every year internationally as a family. And they started a tradition once we were, you know, past the little kids stage of that during Christmas time, rather than staying home and receiving gifts, uh, you know, material things. Our gift every year was an international trip somewhere as a family over Christmas. You know, mm -hmm. and of course, as kids, initially, that was like a oh, you know, I'm not going to, I want a Nintendo system and yeah. all that stuff, you know, the friends getting it. But as time went on, I realized I'd come back from, you know, a, 
great trip in Australia or something, come back and, and realize how much my friends were fascinated to hear the stories and what, what it's like there. And, you know, they, mm-hmm. I, I understood the value I was getting out of it, but I also realized how other people were really jealous about that opportunity. And so they just instilled that, you know, a wanderlust in me and a, and a desire to travel from a very young age. And that's, that really has shaped my life, um, mm-hmm. you know, to this day, the travel aspect of it. Awesome. I love it. Uh, tell me about more about your dad uh, i'm always interested in the personality of people who want to give their life for um, a military or a navy or mm-hmm. do you know if, what was his motivation other than the one i want to do like my dad or that we're passed on yeah. by his dad was it patriotism was it about <clears throat> doing good or helping the world do you, do you know what his motivations were Yeah, I think it's twofold. I mean, I think that um, just from a, a very personal thing, I think that he was a kid, like a lot of little kids, they like playing, you know, soldier and playing army. And there was a fascination with that. I think he had that because he grew up in a military family. So I think he always wanted to be, he was really into Boy Scouts. He became a, an Eagle Scout. Um, so he loved that kind of organization and structure, <clears throat> being part of something bigger than himself um, and just wanted to to travel them. And, uh, and then I, the other part, uh, without a doubt, the patriotism, I mean, his... Uh, It was his grandparents were the first generation or so he was, was his, his parents were first generation Americans. So they were, you know, very poor Polish family that immigrated to the, to the US, yeah. US um, and really, you know, by their bootstraps, like became successful, just working hard. And so I think it was this, you know, dedication, this patriotism towards the US of wanting to, to serve the country yeah. for the opportunities that it's given the family and continues to give the family. So I think that was it, you know, it was a, a thing of, of, uh, wanted to be something larger than himself. I mean, part of an organization wanted to, you know, live this life of adventure and then a strong, you know, patriotic duty to serve as his father did and, you know, previous generations did as mm-hmm. well. So, um, you know, kind of, as we'll get into my story, it's, uh, there's parallels with my father, you know, I also wanted the adventure and the travel, but I was definitely like, I was an anti-authority person. I mean, they always say really? one of my first, yeah, one of my first, You asked about motto and my parents always remind me that. I mean, it was as soon as I could talk when they would tell me to do things or other people, one of the first things that I'd always say is I said, I'm the boss of my own self. Like you don't tell me what, what? to do. I'm, yeah, <laughs> that was my that was my saying, even like dating back when I was in, you know, second grade. I'm the boss of my own self. Like I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Um, so there was definitely, even though I had like most kids my age, we had a fast fascination with the army and you know. Yeah, I, there's no way I would go into it. There's no way that I could do, exist within the bounds of this, mm-hmm. you know, someone telling me what to do and the structure. Um, so I had to kind of forge my own adventure path in life to, mm. you know, live a life of travel and adventure. And so you know, I think with my dad and I are two very different people in that sense. And I think, yeah. you know, he can respect and understand the path I took, even though it had its frustrations with him. Um, do you have any siblings? No, I have an older brother. I have a, a bro- uh, older brother that's three years older than me. Than yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you close to him? Um, we are close. I mean, it's, you know, having children and stuff, he lives on the East coast. I'm here on the West coast. So we yeah. drifted apart a bit, but he, uh, you know, we were very different. It was the same thing growing up. He was always the really excelled in academics, really excelled in sports. You know, he was the star football player, wrestler, all that stuff. And of course, you know, growing up, I was a little bit like, you know, everyone's expecting me to follow like my brother, but he, you know, he was head of student council. He, I was not that I was not a focused student. I tried to do team sports, but realized that team sports was not my thing. You know, I, I, it wasn't that I wasn't good at them, but I just didn't really care. It was like, I wanted to mm-hmm. do, I wanted to be the boss of my own self. I wasn't gonna, you know, I love it. It's funny how yeah, one person is the fruit of uh, its environment. And, and for mm-hmm. you, maybe, you know, your dad being, having these values and they passed on to your older brother who mm-hmm. embraced them most likely. And then, you were reactionary to both him, you know, your, your yep. brother and your dad. Like, I'm not going to be like that. I'm number two as well in the family. Mm-hmm. And it's, just, it's the same. My older brother had to do, and he did write like for everything. And then we're like, no, this is not for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I love it. How about your mom? Um, so my mom, she um, very much was a supportive military wife. I mean, extremely hard. Uh, my dad was gone, you know, all the time. So she was raising the two of us. Um, she, that was a full-time job for her. Um, you know, and of course being in a military family, there's a great community around that. So she had help from the other, you know, military wives as well. Um, but she still would maintain a career during that. She actually got into real estate, um, which was very convenient being a military wife because it was kind of 
as much effort as you want to put into it, you'd reap the rewards and she could kind of set it aside for a little bit, not work as hard while my dad was away on, on different missions or deployments and stuff. Um, but again, huge, huge traveler uh, herself as well. So that was uh, the, the unifying theme in the family. When was the first time you had your, your own trip that was not part of the family and when you decided, <laughs> I want to go there? Um, my own trip, I mean, what essentially happened to me and what kind of got me into the travel thing was that I, as I explained during school, I wasn't really the most focused academic student or into the team sports and stuff. I was really trying to find out who I was and my grades were declining in school. Um, and my parents at one summer, I want to say it was maybe a freshman in high school or sophomore in high school, early sophomore, they, uh, seeing this and though I needed a little bit of focus and actually my dad's thing was, well, I'm going to send him to a military academy, you know? <laughs> and, really? uh, I think my mom being wiser, being like, do not, you know, I mean, he's that mm -hmm. I can see the discipline, but that would actually probably create the biggest friction. And, um, what they decided to send me on was like this wilderness camp, right up, up in the Blue Ridge mountains, um, where I would go backpacking on the Appalachian trail, whitewater rafting and kayaking, rock climbing, stuff like that. And they had sent me off on this, on this, like, two-month camp where it was going to be all wilderness-based stuff and that was I'd say the most pivotal turning point in my life um mm. I remember I kind of you know I was open to it and whatever and I remember my father taking me into this uh, outdoor outfitter store you know that sold all the outdoor equipment in Atlanta it was called high country outfitters and the associate that was helping me pick you know boots and backpack and camping stove and sleeping bag and all this stuff his name was Steve Carvalho and I remember this guy was just like telling stories about canyoneering in Utah and climbing in Yosemite and da, 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 and his knowledge of all of the gear. It was all of a sudden being a child again of these toys, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like actual toys and like his knowledge of these things and the adventures. And it just was like, I was like, this is amazing. And this guy is so cool. You know, I want to be like this guy. And so they sent me off on this wilderness camp. And, you know, I was with these kind of other kids like me that weren't really focused academically, but we were out hiking the Appalachian trail and kind of overcoming obstacles together And we were learning, you know, knots and, and all this climbing gear. And, and it just, mm. it was a thing that just, it, I excelled at. Like I loved all of a sudden it was, a, it was me against myself. It wasn't me part of a team against another yeah. team playing a game. It was like, this was a real thing that, you know, I was scared climbing, um, scared to fall and overcoming those things and learning new skills and mm. exploring, you know, it was like going out and doing 50 miles on the Appalachian trail and covering those distances and coming into towns and floating down rivers. Wow. It just completely captured me, you know, like this is it. And, um, you know, I came back after that. So that was kind of like my first, I'd say yeah. personal trip where I started going on my own personal trip. And what that really showed me was that like the world is a playground, right. Yeah. With all these activities. And so I actually came back to high school. And the thing was, I wasn't, it didn't really like motivate me to get better grades, but it made me be you like, kind of find yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of knew this is what I want to do. And what I ended up doing was I actually went back to that outdoor store, high country outfitters. And I got a job there working in the store along with that guy, Steve Carvalho and all these other guys. And I was working, selling equipment and stuff. I mean, I was like 14, 15 years old and my parents would have to drive me to work, but I was around these older guys and selling equipment. And, um, The thing was that this high country outfitters, they also taught rock climbing classes and they did backpacking courses. And then they had a, a whitewater rafting outpost up on the Ocoee River in Tennessee um, where, and they had a whole guide school. So working with them, then I started getting, I got really into rock climbing after that initial thing, like really, really, really into rock climbing, just obsessed with rock climbing. And we had great little crags around the Atlanta area. And working at the outdoor shop, I'd go with these guys. So then I started like assistant teaching rock climbing courses with these guys. And then the summer came along and I want to become a whitewater guide. And so I'd go up to this outpost in Tennessee and they had an incredible guide school. I mean, just unlike whitewater outfitters nowadays, I mean, this, this guide school, the guy that taught it was, was phenomenal. He had worldwide experience leading whitewater trips. And uh, I learned so much and I became obsessed with that because I was kind of a water person first and foremost. So it was like rock climbing, whitewater. And then with school, it was like, I, uh, not like I was going to be any better grades, But I just kind of realized this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be an yeah. outdoor guide. Yeah. I want to go on adventures and there's a way to do it. These people can make a living being instructors and leaders and outdoor adventures. And this is my vehicle. This is what I want to do. So school, high school became for me, guys, I want to get done with high school so I can do this full time. Mm -hmm. And so it was a motivating factor of me just to get, not like get straight A's, but let me get through, let me get done with yeah. this so I can focus on what I really want to do. I mean, I had like a, 
just an intense drive at that period. And, and, and educationally it was, um, you know, I was all of a sudden, I'm going, uh, you know, rock climbing up and on the Tennessee wall uh, outside of Chattanooga. And I was reading about the geology of the rock formations there. And I wanted to know what these trees were and I wanted to know the history of this area. So it was like, I went down this really deep educational path using these outdoor adventures as a vehicle for exploration mm-hmm. and, and learning. So, um, so that was really where I, uh, went off on my own path. Mm. I love it. I had, I think those years between 16 and 18 are so crucial because you go from the frame of your parents to mm. finding yourself and deciding what, what you love and what you go. Yeah. I had the same at 18. I was very low maturity. I guess, you know, I was in a cocoon <laughs> of my family. We were five kids and my parents were, uh, very protective but then before going to university they said well you maybe you should take a year off and kind of figure out what you want so i was an exchange student for a year in arkansas and (laughs) i i arrived i was the kicker for the american football team because i had played (laughs) soccer before but that year was crucial because it said all right i love to be in an international environment i love to be in an environment that is not familiar to me where you know i I'm not like everybody else. So in some ways I like to be different. I love to learn English or languages. So I want to do more of this. And that triggered like, like you, I wasn't that great in school, but okay, I want to do international business so I can study overseas and blah, blah, everything went on. And I think the earlier you could find your own way, the faster you'll get to, to where you need to go or where you want to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, after that, what what happened did you go to university uh... yeah so that was the next kind of major thing was uh, of course my parents were they're very much uh, this you know we, we're going to go to college um, you need to go to college um, they basically said we're, you know you're gonna we've saved up over all this time and whatever school you can get into that you want to go you can go to we're not going to say you have to go here or there but you're going to go to college and i mean kind of at that point in high school i didn't even want to go to college i was like no i'm good i'm already teaching rock climbing i'm a river guide now you know mm-hmm. it was that hubris of youth like it wasn't really realistic i was going to make a living doing that i mean you could but it would be very subsistence living subsistence living and um i wasn't really into college except for my mom knew like you know out west was where you know i wanted to be out west i was you know, in the Southeast and Appalachia, but I wanted to be out the big rivers and the canyons and we're all cliff. That was where the real adventure was. So she was always ordering catalogs of university of Utah, you know, university of Montana, <laughs> you know, knowing where there was good climbing, like, look at this. And I'm like, okay, but it just didn't really appeal to me. Like the big college things. Um, my brother was, at, I would go visit my brother up at his college. He was at Carnegie Bell in Pittsburgh. And so I'd like go to his fraternity house and be around that. It just wasn't like my thing, I'm like, oh, you've got the New River Gorge nearby, which has great white water and climbing, but like the whole college scene didn't interest me. And um, I had uh, this crazy, crazy thing. And I still am trying to track down this woman. Um, just a very, I think there are just people in your life that make, Before you meet, yeah. You meet that go along. I mean, you look back and you're like, that was such a crucial part of my life, like a crossroads was that I was actually up kayaking on the Nanahala River. Um, I must have been 16, 17 um, at that time. And it was the time during the whole college process thing was going on. And I was uh, below this rapid in an eddy playing, you know, my whitewater boat, like in the hole. Um, And this woman comes down and enters the eddy. And uh, we're kind of talking. And all of a sudden she's like, is is that Clark Catula? What? Yeah. (laughs) She says, it's Cindy Little. I'm like, holy shit. She was my middle school PE teacher. It was like this, like really kind of like bull dyke lesbian PE teacher that was hilarious and was just really cool. And um, I forgot she was into all this outdoor stuff. You know, like it got on my head then because I hadn't been exposed to it. And we sat out on a rock and we were talking about, you know, she's like, it's so great you've discovered this and da, 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 da. Um, and she had been, she had moved on and she was working for like outdoor education programs in North Carolina at that time. And when we got around to talk, she's like, well, where are you going to go to college? And I was like, ah, my parents are throwing these things out here, but I'm not sure. And she says, well, if I could have gone back in time, she said, I would have gone to this place in Arizona called Prescott College. Um, they have the best outdoor education program that basically it's the, all the faculty are like career uh, national outdoor leadership school and outward bound instructors. And it's a, it's an experiential educate. You're not sitting in yeah. classes. You're actually going off on river expeditions wow. and you learn by doing and, you're, and it produces the best outdoor leaders in the world. It's the preeminent school. And I, I still was like kind of, 
you know, as a teen, like, I'm not going to go to college. I know what I'm going to do, but I got home and like three or four weeks later, I come home and I come home from school and there was always a stack of college catalogs that would come in the mail. My mom's going through them and she goes, Hmm. She says, Prescott college. I don't remember ordering this one. And I'm like, and I'm like, like, and I don't remember if I did say something about this to my mom or I, but I think that it was actually Cynthia Little that my PE teacher ordered that catalog had sent. What? So I grab this catalog and I go upstairs and we have this outdoor balcony in my room. Um, and I went and I ripped open this catalog and it was, I remember like this black and white cover of this person, like with a backpack sitting under this acacia tree in Canyon country. And I open it up and like their motto was, um, education is a journey, not a destination. And all these pages were like, groups yeah. out you know on oh, rafting expeditions yeah. and backcountry skiing and it was all about their educational philosophy is that you need to learn by doing and you know it's mm-hmm. not um you know you know education is a journey and it was a, it was very philosophical about education and, and the thing was i was like oh my god and it was talking about how the courses were taught by the students on the courses like you were invested in teaching your your peers um and you would go learn, mm. you know, environmental sciences in the environment that you were studying, not in the classroom. And I'm going through this and I just all of a sudden realized like this was my educational philosophy. I was already doing this when I was off on my whitewater kayaking and on my climbing is that I was studying these areas. I was fascinated where I was mm. exploring. I wanted to know more. And so all of a sudden the school was like, this is it. And I just came downstairs and I was like, mom, I want to go to this college. And they were like, yes, yes. like finally there's something he wants. So it was it when I visited the school. When I visited the school, it was a lengthy application process, um, but I got accepted and um, yeah, and I knew that's what I wanted to do is be an outdoor leader. And uh, yeah, I packed up my, my car and kayak on the roof and all my climbing gear. And I, I took off that summer before college and just spent months driving around the West climbing and, and running whitewater rivers before I showed up in Arizona for, for school. So that was the next, wow. the next stage. Yeah. So that was five years of university. Um, it's a, it was a four-year program, um, and it was a very interesting school that, as I said, it was all field-based, so we basically had fleets of these, like, 16-passenger vans, and we would we'd go run the, the Grand Canyon, you know, for 21 days, like, be rafting the Grand Canyon for 21 days, but teaching, you know, having class sitting around in a circle at the campsite every night. We would be, uh, you know, we did months in Mexico, sea kayaking around Baja and backpacking through the Sierra Madre wow. mountains. And all like-minded people yep. of the yeah, same and, and age. Most of the, yeah, well, actually, it was interesting that most of the students that were there um, were actually older. They were, um, they were they had gone to more traditional universities and colleges and done a couple of years and then took like a gap year off. because like, this wasn't, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. You know, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. And they came around to realizing finding a path in life or deciding what they wanted to do or they were outdoor and then they found Prescott College so a lot of people were older they had gone to other places and they'd found Prescott College later I was very lucky that I kind of knew what I wanted to do was already kind of involved in this outdoor education realm and went straight to that school to get it done so I kind of had a a head start I was one of the younger students coming in right out of high school to do the outdoor Mm -hmm. education program Um, but yeah but very much people that were um like-minded and i think because like i said with these older students that had gone out and gained some life experience and then it took like they took a time off like you did took a gap year to explore and really think about who they are and what they want to do and then they came to Prescott college like okay this is what i want to do and accomplish it and and their teaching style was very interesting is that we didn't have grades like you know a b c d f type of thing we had self-evaluation so you would go into a course like i would do a course which was a you know, search and search and rescue techniques for um, high angle search and rescue. And you would go into it and you'd have to basically write a paragraph saying, this is what I want to get out of the course and why. And this is how I'm going to prove that I did that. And you would then do the course and it throughout, you kind of keep track of your progress. And at the end, you'd have to evaluate yourself. So it's very much like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. How am I going to get there? What are the ways that I'm going to measure my, my progress on this goal? And at the end, reflecting on did I accomplish what I wanted to do? Like how, what could I have done better in learning? Like, you know, where mm-hmm. did I get distracted? So I think it was the, their whole educational philosophy was, was, can be so, I found later on in life where it's like, I want to do this. Okay. I want to do this. What do I need to do to do that? And how can I be constantly evaluating myself during the process of like where I'm spending my time and focus, like what is really advancing me? And then actually looking back and saying, okay, I did that really well. 
um, you know, it was something I could apply to any goal I had in life after, after school. Yeah. Uh, what were the uh, your character traits in terms of personality do you think you were born with and the one that you've built over time? Um, yeah, I mean, boiling it back to, I guess, like my motto was I'm boss of my own self. And I think that that was pretty much like what, um, hmm. what drives me, you know, like I, I can't do something unless I'm really passionate about it, right? Um, I can't be motivated unless I'm really passionate about what I'm doing. If I'm not into something, I'm like, I, I so you were naturally like this. You were naturally like, yeah, yeah, I think I was naturally kind of like that. But I learned that, you know, over time with school that it was really like, I need, if I can find something I'm really passionate about love, then I'd go 110% on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that passion, passion works, you know, I mean, passion sells passion for things is, is a, a major success factor you know you have to be passionate and love what you do like yeah. i'm not the type of person that can just grind some, grind through something i don't really have that perseverance of like i could never i don't think i could kayak to hawaii like you like i don't <laughs> think i have that in my mind like as far as the day after yeah. day grind mentally it's like you know if i just loved being on the, the water act of paddling yeah. and water yeah. maybe i could you know i'd have to look at it from that way rather than i'm going to do this challenge i think the monotony yes. of something like that would, would wind me down unless i could find something that i was extremely passionate about in there you know mm-hmm. um so let's go to the second part of the podcast which is the i really want to do this so you already mm-hmm. touched on finding your 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 own self and your own motivations but is there a moment that you recall where you really thought i really want to do this and Mm -hmm. let's talk about the what but because that's really interesting for for everybody it's it's different uh but let's try to try uh to decrypt it and and how uh you played it to make it happen Mm -hmm. yeah so, I mean, going back from high school and particularly in college, I wanted to be an outdoor expedition leader. That was, I just thought, what a cool job if I can make a living taking people on adventures in the wilderness or just taking people on adventures or, or, or traveling. That's what I want to do, right? How can I make a living doing that? And, um, you know, obviously I had, you know, sought out opportunities to teach climbing and better myself and all these skills and went to this college that was specifically what I wanted to do. But when it came down to like, how can I actually make this a reality as, as far as a career, I had a really good mentor at, at the college. He was saying, look, Clark, you know, your, your hard skills in terms of your, your navigation, your, you know, um, wilderness first aid, yeah. your, your, your guiding, your technical skills. That's great. Okay. You can be, a, people can go safely with you on these adventures and they're in good hands with you. But what is it that you're bringing? What, what's going to differentiate you in terms of being an outdoor leader where you're like marketable or, or you have a niche um, in something? And so they were really, the school had this thing called you had to have a, a breath. So you had your competency, which was outdoor education, but you had your breath. Like that was like, what was the, the thing that kind of mm-hmm. added to this? And, you know, for some people, it was they got really into wildlife biology. They got into ecology, uh, stuff like that. But for me, it was really the travel aspect. And um, so I, as I said, growing up, I had been around the world internationally, but I had really just been like Southeast Asia, Australasia, Europe, bit of North Africa. Um, but Latin America, Central and South America was a place that we never traveled as a family. And it had always held this like super lore to me. I mean, like the Amazon jungle, machetes, yeah. banditos, yeah. emeralds. And, you know, that it was just something that captivated me, the whole Latin America thing. And, um, and it was also coinciding with, I was really into whitewater kayaking, you know, whitewater rivers. And that was kind of the, the next frontier. There was all these rivers that were being explored. There was out, uh, whitewater outfitters that were popping up on the Fulufu River in Chile and elsewhere. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to be in that realm. And so I, uh, with the school, we could kind of design our own, our own classes. And, uh, I decided I'm going to head to South America. I'm going to do like a three month self-study thing in South America. Um, and I think I only remember I wrote at the class. Well, actually before that, I had a friend that was also kind of on the same kick, a good friend named Rob Petrie, who was a bit older than me. And he had somehow met this guy that owned a run a, an outfitter in Bolivia. 
And uh, he invited Rob to come down to Bolivia to lead rafting expeditions and mountain biking and stuff. So Rob took off to go to Bolivia. And I'm like, I want to, I want to do the same thing, you know, when I follow down and he was a few months ahead of me, he had gone down to Bolivia and this was like pre, you know, email and stuff like that. Like email was around, but we weren't really using it, but he had been in Bolivia. And then, uh, that guy's company was kind of a disaster and it didn't work out. And Rob ended up just through the grapevine, making his way to Cusco, Peru. And he was in Cusco, Peru. And after a little while there guiding, he had like, I think he called me from, you know, an internet cabana type of thing. It was like, Clark, he was like, you have to get to Cusco, Peru. This is where it's at. It's like, there's so much work for outdoor leaders here. This place is awesome. It's a fun town. Like, we've got to get here. So I designed this three-month course and submitted it to Preston College. It was called a, a historical and geographical survey of Peru. And then I was going to also do like a Spanish language intensive to get my, my fluency up. And it got approved. It basically gave me a three-month thing to go and Cool. learn in Peru. And so I went and I ended up in Cusco and it was like, um, I, I was captivated before I went, I just was, you know, reading about the Incas and da, 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 da. I just like was so fired up to be in Peru. And so I spent those three months there and I mean, even arriving was like serendipitous. Cause I, I flew to, and I, I brought my kayak. I brought climbing. I brought so much stuff with me. You brought your kayak. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, it was much easier back then to travel with stuff like that, you know, on the airlines, but I showed up and I basically, all I had arriving in Cusco was I had arranged a homestay with a family through the language school that I was going to be like living with a Peruvian family and, and going to school. <laughs> this is a, a great funny story. So I, I land in Cusco and I'm expecting so someone how old to be are you? like 25. I was, no, I was like 19. Oh, 20. what? So you're yeah. young. Yeah. I was like maybe 20. Um, this was 97. And um, I show up in Cusco and uh, you know, it's 10,500 feet in the Andes and I get off uh, there bright sunlight. And I'm like looking around at all the people, the chaos, with, like signs and everything. And there was no one with a, a sign with my name on it. I didn't know what to do. And my Spanish was really rudimentary and I had all the stuff and I pulled it over and I'm like, you know, these taxi drivers are coming up to me in Spanish. Da, 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 and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, you know, someone's supposed to be here to pick me up and take me to this family's home, but they're not like, what am I going to do? And I'm sitting down in my kayak and I'm like, my head's kind of thumping and I hear this accented English. So I say, Hey man, what you doing? And I look up and it says Rasta guy with these dreadlocks speaks English, but he's obviously Peruvian. And I'm like, Hey, I was like, I'm going to this language school. And they were supposed to pick me up and take me to this family's house. I have the address of the home. And he goes, yeah, but he said, you're a kayaker, huh? They said, yeah. And he said, Oh, cool. You're going to, you come in here to work. I was like, I'd love to, but I don't know, you know, anything. And he said, huh? All right. Well, you have the address of the family that you're staying with. I said, yeah, here it is. And it was like, Zarumia 221. And uh, he goes, I know where that is. And he says, well, Hey man, he said, the person I'm here to pick up isn't here. I'll take you. So he, I like go with a stranger Rasta guy and he takes my kayak and he puts it on top of his van and lashes it down like with cam straps. He knew what he was doing. We get in the van and then he's like, so you you really don't have work yet with whitewater. He said, you, you'll you get a job easily uh, as a safety kayaker and a river guide. I'm like, I'd love to. I said, I had a friend that was down here. Um, he said, oh yeah, who? I said, Rob Petrie. He said, Rob, I know Rob. And he's like, <laughs> X. he said, well, if you're, and then he pulls out a pack of cigarettes. And he pulls out this big joint and he goes, a friend of Rob is a friend of mine. And he fires up this joint. So here I am, you know, 15 minutes arrival in Peru, driving around with this Rasta guy smoking a joint through Cusco. It's and there's like sure. ladies, ladies with llamas walking down the street in their traditional dress. And I'm just blown away. And he takes me to this family's home. Eventually drops me off. And I, the last thing I wanted to do was go and stay with his family at the time. But drops me off of the family. I guess the family gives him the phone number of the house. And I was just, I was sick from out to do that night. I fell asleep. And in the morning, the mother of the family comes in my room and knocks on the door. And he's like, Clark, there's a telephone, telephone para ti. I'm like, what? Who's calling me? And I go answer the phone and it's this guy named Chando. He says, hey, my name's Chando. I run a, a river outfit here called Mayuk. He said, our driver, Yela, just gave me your number and said, you arrived your friends are Rob and you're a good whitewater kayaker. He said, we have an expedition on the Apurimac okay. River leaving in an, in an hour. What? And our safety kayaker didn't show up. If you can be in the Plaza de Armas in 30 minutes with all your gear ready to go for four night trips, you've got a job and we'll pay you like 50 bucks a day to safety kayak on this river. And I was like, I'm, you know, done. <laughs> and I'm trying to explain to this family in broken Spanish, like I'm going to work. And they're like, no, you're not, you know, and whatever. So I take all out my kayak stuff, flag down a taxi. I'm like Plaza de Armas. I don't even know what that is. I haven't been to the Plaza. 
drive me in. And of course I see the bus with the kite, with the rafts and the, the frames on it and all the gear. And I show up and there's all the Peruvian river guides. And I'm like, Hey, do I get your stuff on the bus? And so I went, you know, after a couple hours sleep and drive four hours into this river Canyon to safety cataclysm class five river. And, you know, that was, uh, so what, I, it, what it talks to me is like, you, you said yes to, to adventure because you left for there, mm -hmm. but then it feels like adventure found you. And all you yeah. had to do was say, say yes. And, uh, spontaneity, curiosity and adventure. Let's go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was also looking back, it, um, it was being at the right place at the right time as well. Um, I didn't realize I had all these experience guiding in, in the U S and like, I wanted to go to South America to do this. And the reality is particularly Cusco Peru at that time, they had just gotten done with, you know, a really nasty long kind of guerrilla civil war there, the shining path guerrillas and all that had just kind of stopped. So actually adventure travel was coming back um, to Peru. Travelers are coming back to Peru and Cusco was really the center of this. Yeah. Machu Picchu is right nearby. It's a jumping off point for the Inca trail to Machu Picchu and all the Incan ruins and there's great rivers. So just having the, the core skills that I had um, and then putting myself in an area where there's ripe of opportunity and just kind of putting myself out there is what led to that. You know, it was like, I pretty much had that first trip. Um, the first morning I was there and this is where I need to be. This is what I want to do. And that kept me there for 10 years. And it just expounded upon that in terms of leading trips in Latin America. What? You stayed. So after that, you stayed, you went back to the yeah. US to finish. So, so not, not completely. I, I yeah, I, I was there enough. for those three, I, the three months I extended that, I think the six or seven months uh, beyond the three months I was going to stay. I worked at the school. Like I'm going to continue, you know, sending back my progress of my education. And then I had to go back obviously to finish a couple courses in Arizona And, um, I did right when I graduated, I kind of tried to get like a real job for uh, a month or so. And, but it, Peru had just captured me and, and I was like, this is what I always wanted to do. And that's what I was doing. And that's where I need to be. So I went back and, and yeah, established myself there. Hmm. So in terms of lifestyle, that's what you wanted in terms of like, did you make enough money just for living there or did you didn't yeah. care really, but career yeah i mean like, obviously I you're single this. and you know living a dream and it was great but the reality was is that i i did and and this was you know a gradual process but of course i was just doing whitewater expeditions originally but you know these were i would be gone from a minimum of four days up to 11 days like some of the amazonian expeditions would be 11 days i'd be gone and so living that river guide lifestyle was great i mean these were really challenging you know class four or five rivers um really remote areas um And it was great, but obviously the river guiding, it didn't, didn't pay as well. But, but what happened was that I realized again, it's, uh, I was so fascinated with uh, the cultures of the Andes, with the history of the Incas and the civilizations of the Andes and the areas that I was really, again, really self-studying all the time about this, um, learning as much as I could. So I did eventually segue away from just whitewater to then like leading tour groups So with other opportunities came up with other outfitters in the area where they're like, because I, you know, spoke good Spanish then, and I had a really good understanding of the local history and the archeological sites and all that. Then I, there was opportunities for me to guide like tour leading groups where I wasn't having to set up camp, you know, guide class five whitewater, set up camp, cook for everybody, rig the rafts, which is really hard manual labor. All of a sudden I was like staying at nice hotels, you know, and just taking a group of 10 people through Peru and teaching them about stuff. And translating and working with other local guides and so that all of a sudden was where the money came in where i got paid a lot more being yeah. kind of a, a local expert on the region and working for different international tour operators leading trips for them so that came you know i wasn't really like i said at that time i'm not thinking about i, I guess i was kind of how am i going to make a living out of that but money wasn't the important thing right mm -hmm. as long as i could get by that's fine i lived in the house with six other guides and it was you know we slipped on our thermos mattresses because we didn't care Um, but yeah, I did segue into this thing of, of, I realized then later, I'm like, oh, I work in the adventure travel industry. Yeah. I didn't think about it. I was like, I'm getting paid to, to lead whitewater trips. What a dream. But eventually I was working in the, the adventure travel industry. Um, and I'm still involved to this day in it. So, mm. so the, the people you were guiding with were Americans. They were also, uh, from other nationalities and the, also the tourists were from a bunch of nationalities. So I would imagine, okay, I've got a group of. German, French, Spanish, Italian mm -hmm. come in and so yeah. interesting to have like the, the yeah. mix of cultures, isn't it? Or 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I actually worked, the guides I worked with were primarily Peruvian. We'd have some, um, some Chileans, some Ecuadorians that would, you know, oh, migrate wow. through for the seasons, but I, it was pretty much, I was, I was one of maybe two or three, um, foreigners, foreigners in Peru guiding as well. But it was like, when I would go guide, I'd work with all Peruvian guides, um, there, but our clientele were, yeah, from elsewhere, um, us, Canada, Australia. And I actually got involved a lot just because of one of the companies I guided for mainly, um, they were a British company. So I actually, it was majority British clientele that I, I ended up working with. And hence how I, I met my wife, she's from Scotland. She was a, a passenger on one of these trips. Fantastic. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was a very, um, very international uh, experience yeah. being exposed to different cultures there and working with, with different cultures. And it was also, you know, even with my Spanish, even though I studied at a Spanish language school there, I, I learned Spanish through working, you know, it was a, uh, you know, and that's how I knew that's how I learned. I don't sit there repetitiously going yes. over how to conjugate verbs in Spanish. I'd be on the river and the guides would be like, Clark, you know, try me la pala. And I'm like, pala. Yeah. Okay. And they're yeah. like, you know, like, oh, the <laughs> yeah. shovel. And yes. so I always remember when I learned the word pala was because I had to go find this thing because we had to, you know, bury a dead man anchor or something like that in the sand. So it was all just learn. It was just learning, learning, learning and being exposed to stuff, you know, during that time period at a, a mm -hmm. tremendous rate. For sure. Oh. Yeah. Traveling is the best. I did. Um, is, uh, I had the, the, the opportunity just after my studies. I wasn't ready to go work yet. So I took a year off and I did a trip around the world backpacking with a friend. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the, the whole budget was $7,000 for mm -hmm. one year of traveling. Yeah, and I look at, and I remember thinking, <laughs> we don't have money, but we have time. And yeah. 15 years from now, we'll, we'll have money most likely, and, but we won't have time. So let's do it now. And I remember our budget was $10 a day for everything, for mm -hmm. housing, eating, visits. And we didn't care. We'd eat in the streets. And that was the, the best. Yeah. Oh. So after Peru, you, you started to travel more, and, but all South America, obviously, you, you're fluent in Spanish then. Well, let's go to yeah. Bolivia, let's go to Ecuador. Did you travel mm -hmm. more after that? Though? Yeah, well, I mean, during that period, I was based in Cusco, Peru, but as, you know, guiding more and more and having better connections in the industry and being asked to lead trips for different companies, I ended up, you know, leading trips in Bolivia. I went and spent the season down in Chile guiding. I went up to Ecuador and guided um, whitewater rivers there. I went and did some uh, guide training for whitewater guides in Colombia. So um, my, you know, being based in Peru and being focused there, it, I had connections. I ended up kind of traveling all over. And the other great thing was that, you know, really the season in Peru at that time was pretty much May through October was the, the dry season. And that's when the majority of travelers came to Peru and particularly the whitewater season as well. So I really could focus and concentrate over, you know, that May to October period of working and making money. And then the rest of the year, I would just go travel and backpack. You know, I, I yeah. met my wife at that time and she had left Scotland come to live with me in Peru and you know my season would be finished and I remember like one time yeah dropping off a group at the La Paz airport in Bolivia and then turning to my girlfriend and being like well it's my last trip of season what should we do we've got like five months and I'm like let's go to Patagonia and we just spent like three months backpacking in Torres del Paine and Los Glaciares National Park and traveling all around Chile backpacking and then another year we I said let's go back to the states like she hadn't been around the states much and I had my my uh, I had a, like a converted camper van that was at my parents' house in Montana. And we drove back and grabbed that thing. And we drove the entire West coast of the U S and the whole West coast of Mexico down into Guatemala. I finished in Honduras, came back up. Like it was, you know, months yeah, and months so of nice. just travel and uh, then go back to lead expeditions. It was, it was amazing. But um, so, so yeah, there was a lot of travel, but I just, the thing is, it's, I, I kind of have this mentality, I guess that with Latin America is so captivating. I think that the more that you start to, explore it the more you realize how much more is out there you know yeah. and like yeah i would love to go to other continents but i was just so focused on this region i think having the language fluency in the area made it so great to travel that you could really dig it dig in so i just dedicated like pretty much my entire 20s into adventuring and leading trips in, yeah. in central and south america yeah and it's so great to connect with the local population and once you know the language and you know a little mm -hmm. bit the the local language too you know the, the words that they use in peru versus argentina bolivia yeah, it's chile um tell me about how you felt when you came back from these trips to the u.s and, and then the reason i'm asking is after my trip around the world that's when i discovered whoa this is what life is all about i was already a bon vivant where i love 
Like I'm going to live life. I'm going to work so I can live what I want to do. Yeah. But then you come back and those guys, all those friends of university, they're working for banks, working for whatever yeah. car companies and whatnot. And, and they, they, you have a hard time then to connect back to say, well, you know, they say, oh, it's great. You had such a great fun times, but they can't really understand what it means, you know, to, to yeah. actually live the way you do. Yeah, did, yeah. Did you have this, uh, this connection a little bit with your friends that stayed in the U.S. and did say, well, that's good. You're in Cusco. Well, for them, it's just the Machu Picchu on, on, on mm -hmm. Google, you know? Yeah. No, absolutely. It, it, there's always that reintegration back. It was a big shift. I mean, mine, and I didn't really, that was a thing. I had, I had lived all over that, you know, when I left the Atlanta, Georgia from high school, went to Arizona, and then I was traveling all over. I didn't really have home. My parents had since moved to Montana and then Chicago. So I didn't really have like a home base. Right. I mean, Peru is my home. I mean, I had spent more time there than anywhere. I was, you know, half Peruvian at that point, but You know, for me, what happened was that my wife, I met her, she came out and I, she on a whitewater rafting trip and trekked the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu and an extension to Lake Titicaca and I was her guide. So that's how we met. And then she, she's a dentist from Scotland and she ended up getting out of her practice in Glasgow and selling her flat and her car and all, everything she owned and moved to Peru with me to like, she's like this, I want to live my life like this too. And we ended up founding a nonprofit organization. We worked with, she went out into these really rural indigenous villages in the Andes and provided emergency dental care wow, and education. Wow. So we have a project called Dental Project Peru that we started. And so she had volunteers come. So we were running that. She did that for like five, five, six years of me in Peru. Um, and so we had kind of got into this thing where I was off leading these expeditions and she was doing the, the medical trips out into, I mean, really, really remote areas. But I think we both were the type that we both knew we wanted to have children and have a family and stuff like that. And I think we got to the point where even at least for me, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I think after 10 years, I was getting a bit burnt out on it. It was like, yeah. I, I lived, lived out of a dry bag and a duffel bag. And, um, you know, I was ready for a change. And I think we both looked at Peru and we were like, she's really close to their family in Scotland. We tried going back to Scotland a couple of times to live there, but it just was not my, my cup of tea. Um, cup of whiskey. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I'm whiskey, I'm all about. It just was, it was a really culturally different place to go from the high Andes to like the oh, islands yeah. of Scotland, you know? Yeah, and yeah. um, and so it was a shift. We uh and then my wife being a dentist, she's like, Well, I want to get back into dentistry. And so if we're not going to go to Scotland and we're not going to stay in Peru, then the US was the other logical place. And so um she looked at what program she could get into in the US to get her, her US dental license. So that's what brought us back to the the US. And we moved we moved to San Francisco in to 2017 um and that was a shift for me so one of the things with the guiding as i said i was getting a bit burnout on the guiding thing and it was really hard to extricate yourself from that um if you were a good guide there the companies wanted you to guide because you made people happy and it brought more business and i'm like i want to be less in the field right now i have this relationship um i want to be less on these expeditions and can i come work in the office for you or do whatever and they're like mm. No, you know, we want you out guiding trips. So I realized that actually my experience and skills um, are going to be, have more value outside of Peru at that point. Like my experiences leading trips in South America have more value outside of it. So my wife got into a UCSF to get her, her US dental license. And the thing was, there was great outdoor adventure travel companies here in San Francisco that I'd actually guided for geographic expeditions, mountain travel, so back wilderness travel. So I had these contacts with them as one of their contracted trip leaders. So when we moved to San Francisco, I kind of had to go to those companies and say, Hey, I'm coming there. Would, would you hire me to come work at the company, like selling trips, organizing trips, whatever. So um, I had offers with a few of these travel companies, but the thing was, I didn't have any experience working in an office. You know, I was never in front of the computer. I didn't have like, you know, job skills, like a traditional sense, like I had led expeditions, and, uh, you know? And so I, I have huge gratitude and thanks to a guy at a company called Geographic Expeditions, a fellow named Brady Binstadt. And that's really, really where I wanted to work. Um, their office was on the Presidio. And um, they, the management was like, this guy has no office skills. He has no business skills. I mean, he was a leader. How's he going to work in this office environment? As Brady is like, I trust this guy. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we need someone who can sell Latin America. And who better to sell Latin America than the guy that actually led the trips and knows it? Yeah, so you have the answer for, for everything. Yeah. yeah. And got me in that company. And so for me, it was, um, I was ready for it. I had had, you know, my entire 20s leading these expeditions and I was kind of ready to move on and do something else. And 
kind of take the next step in, in the career. So going to work for geographic expeditions, I was in an office, but I was dealing with what I loved. You know, I was, or I was sitting down and creating trips. I was, mm-hmm. I was creating the trips, marketing them on the phone, you know, selling people on, Oh, you need to go do this trek in Peru. Like I'll organize this for you. And I had to let go of my guide hat and work on those kind of selling trips. And, and I, I loved it. I actually loved going in the office and having kind of like a nine to five job, which sounds really strange, but I wouldn't have been able to do that without getting all that on my system, you know, and spending mm-hmm. like a decade not doing nine to five that I'm like, Hey, I really love like getting a paycheck every two weeks, you know, and, and being in an office with other people and actually excelling at something, just like selling trips and, and yeah. seeing our sales numbers and creating new stuff. And I was collaborating with guides I work with. So it was just a new stage all of a sudden in life. Um, and, and I just remember it was the opposite where I, I had been at a point living in Peru initially where like, I'll never go back and live in the United States, you know, like really anti-empire thought type of guy. And, you know, here I was back living in the United States. And I remember, for example, like going into a UPS, I had to send some documents to New York and they were like, well, would you like a yeah. one week service, two day service, <laughs> or would you like overnight guaranteed by 10 a.m.? And coming from Peru, like stuff does not work like that in a developing yes. country when you live in the Andes. And I remember just being like, tomorrow at 10 a.m., you can have that in New York guaranteed. Yeah. I don't need to like follow up on you. And like, so all of a sudden, the efficiency, efficiencies of like a it's modern so country, I was loving it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then we, you know, it was an interesting thing with my wife being Scottish and kind of all of a sudden living in America and seeing that whole cultural thing pay out. But of course, we're coming back into it. And and you had, as you said, you had all your friends that spent that previous decade working on their career and saving up money to get a down payment, you know, for a mortgage and a house and starting a family. Like we were behind by 10 years with everybody when it came to this, you know, Mm -hmm. real life um, career set. I didn't care. I would never give up that 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 decade in South America doing what I did um you know of course you you're looking around at other people's homes and oh I don't know if we'll ever be able to afford that but you get there eventually um so yeah the the reintegration was was interesting but um you know I managed to stay in the industry that I love I managed to stay doing what I was passionate about doing and I've been successful just focusing on that Mm. so you still travel you said about a week a month Mm. on your own company now Yeah, after the five years working at Geographic Expeditions um, in that setting, I learned a lot about the the travel industry. I learned, you know, I would be in Peru just receiving people off of an airplane and taking them as adventures, but I never really knew like what happened prior to that person arriving in Peru and me me meeting them as a guide. There's this whole business behind it of people organizing and selling these trips. So I had five years of just this like crash course in the business of adventure travel behind the scenes. And it was fascinating and it was really good because I understood the operational side in the field. And so like learning the, all the sales and marketing and the business aspect of it was great. So I did that for five years, but again, you know, back to the, I'm the boss of my own self. Um, mm-hmm. I then got burned out after five years going into an office every day and having the nine to five and the office politics and stuff. So I decided I wanted to do my own thing and I started my own company. It's very specialized. I basically am like the North American representative for different high-end adventure lodges throughout Central and South America. And so um, I basically now liaise with all of the travel agents and tour operator companies here in North America and in Canada. And I basically go to them and I teach them why they want to sell this lodge and who's the right clients for it and how to sell it and what are the seasons. So I'm like a go between to the providers in South America and the people that sell here in North America, kind of bringing bringing together basically my two experiences of working as a guide and then working as the tour operator. Mm-hmm. Um, So a lot of my travel, I do travel a lot domestically where I'll be in New York, I'll be in Miami. I go visit with tour operators and travel agents and I do presentations on how to sell these lodges in Patagonia or the Amazon or the Galapagos that are my clients. Um, But then I still am heavily involved with each of their operations in South America. So in terms of their internal workings and the feedback we get from clients, how can we improve the guest experience there in the field? So it still, you know, takes me back and forth uh, between my, my experiences in the industry. And, you know, I set my own schedule. Um, I do travel, like I'm, I'm going next week to lead a group, uh, in Peru, actually a, a trek to Machu Picchu. And, but now who I'm taking is I'm taking, um, travel industry professionals. So travel agents, so they can sell it better to I take them to familiarize themselves actually with the product by doing it. So I'll be leading that trip with them. So it's, uh, you know, I'm excited about that and kind of marries my past guiding with the industry stuff nowadays mm-hmm. that I do. So I still get to travel, but I also get to 
spend time with my family and enjoy where I live and enjoy the house we live in and all that. So mm. it's, it's come full circle. Tell me about the satisfaction that you had as a guide to, to see your clients come in and, and see them being super happy about the trip. And is there a satisfaction on I'm sure like, wow, they came, they had no clue of the country and I showed them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, the satisfaction of the guiding was uh, in, on many levels. One was just a, the sense of satisfaction, particularly for the outdoor expeditions when you finish those and you know, everyone flew home and they were safe, you know, it was mission accomplished. But for me, the, the greatest satisfaction was, you know, a lot of people choose to go on journeys and travel because they're dealing with something in their life at the moment. You know, um, they're mm -hmm. going through divorce or they're going through a career change or there's something happening in their life and travel is a great way to kind of, you know, yeah. I'm not going to think about this by escaping a little bit. It's almost escapism. People go on these trips, but they're, they're not really escaping. They're actually going away to have space to be inspired and think about their situation and deal with it. So I think some of my more powerful uh, set, you know, experiences guiding with individuals have been in those cases. Um, I had one guy that I'm still in touch with. He was a career, uh, he was a, an RAF fighter pilot. He flew Harriers. Um, And he had been in, you know, the, the Gulf Wars and stuff. And he had got to a point where he was then out of the RAF and going into commercial aviation to fly, you know, 747s mm -hmm. and stuff. And he had been doing this a couple months and he just was so depressed. He's like, I'm flying Harriers in combat. And now all of a sudden I'm flying, you know, these massive yeah, buses in the sky. And he was going through this period of life and he came out to Peru and was a uh, We had just really deep conversations about it. He kept relaying to me. He said, it's great seeing you. He said, you're passionate. You'd love what you do. And that's what makes you successful. He says, I was passionate on this side of aviation, but now I'm not. And that's what I'm struggling with. So it was like, he left that trip being like, I need to find, I need to go back to what I'm passionate about. You know, it was that I had, um, you know, situations with people who had, you know, recently lost a, a parent or a loved one. And it was a trip where we would, you know, after all the guiding was done and we're sitting on the beach in the evening to really have them talk about their, the, you know, their, their dad, they, they just, there's this guy named Alistair. I remember he just lost his dad and really deep conversations about his, his relationship with his dad, and what he would have, mm -hmm. what he wish he could have told him and ways he could have been a better son and all that. And so those were the most satisfying things is that taking people on these adventures and giving them the chance to really analyze their life and, yeah. and leave that trip inspired to go back and actually deal with the situation at home. Mm -hmm. And my wife was a, another thing. I mean, she was a kind of, when we met, she, that trip for her to Peru was, was according to her was kind of her last hurrah before the guy she'd been with for 10 years was going to propose to her. And she was going to be kind of settled down and living in Glasgow the rest of her life being a dentist. And she didn't want that. She's like, I want a more adventurous life. And she's like, well, let me just go and get this out of my system and go to Peru. And then I'll come back to my reality at home. But she came to Peru and, and met me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, her life went down a completely different thing. So she got, you know, more than she paid for on that trip. <laughs> um, so that's the satisfaction, um, you know, as far as dealing with the customers. And then, I mean, for me personally, I remember, like, you know, there's this one memory that just comes to my mind often about that period is I remember dropping a group off in Lima at the end of a trip and flying from Lima to Cusco. It's an hour flight and always get a window seat on the left-hand side because we'd be going over like, you know, Machu Picchu and this whole area. And I remember just flying. It was a beautiful morning in the Andes and I was looking down and I could identify like there's the Black Canyon of the Apurimac River. There is Mount Salcantay and there's the glacier and there's that awesome campsite. And there's that village of Santa Teresa. And I know Rodrigo that lives there with his wife and three girls and herds llamas and he's a six hour walk from anywhere and just looking at this landscape and just being like oh my god like I'm getting I have spent you know so many years and I know this landscape below me intimately and I know the people down there and I know these remote areas and I just I like tears streaming on my face of just gratitude of what I was able to do at that time and you know the people that I got to know and the landscapes I got to know intimately and that was a Yeah, just a, a powerful memory that I always mm -hmm. have. Fantastic. So that conversation with that that pilot, when he said, "You're doing what you love," do you think it's it's it was basically the your strategy to throughout your life? I'm trying to to extract like the essence of of why you did what you did and why it worked. Mm -hmm. Was it just basically as simple as do what you want to do? I mean, And don't settle yeah. for anything else that 
doesn't motivate you. Yeah. I mean, do what you love. You know, if you do what you love, you're going to have passion about it. It's going to get you out of bed in the morning. Um, and you're going to be excited about doing your life's work. And, you know, that that's what keeps me going. Um, I think that's it. It, it. it comes with its, its challenges, no doubt. You know, I definitely had times when I would go back and, you know, I don't have health insurance. I don't have this. Like, look at what money is in this little bank account in Peru. And I would doubt, doubt what I'm doing. You know, I should be doing what my peers are doing at the same age. And you, but, you know, I realized I tried that. I tried to go down that path and I wasn't happy. You no, know, I was happy following what mm-hmm. I, what I love doing. And uh, it comes with struggles. But I think if you persevere um, and just focus on being the best at what you're best at, and what mm-hmm. you love doing, you know, you can find a way to, to make a living doing that. Mm-hmm. I love it. Well, listen, we've already been talking for an hour. I don't I want to respect wow. all, for all your time. It's, it's so fun. I love to discover people's lives. Uh, for a conclusion, um, if you had one advice, you already gave a few, but if you have one, one advice for somebody who was trying, who's got it, a goal, and he's been postponing that goal. It could be one goal. It could be a life, life attitude. What, what would advice would you give them? Uh, the one thing that you want them to remember? Um, stay focused. I mean, if there's something that you're really passionate about and you want to accomplish, I mean, learn as much as you can about it. Always be studying. Always be learning. You know, mm-hmm. um, you, particularly nowadays, you've got the world at your fingertips with the internet. I mean, whatever you want to do, you can do it. And you can kind of do it yourself, I think. Um, and then the other big thing is really put yourself around other people that share your mentality and your viewpoint and your drive. I mean, those are the people that are going to encourage you to stay on that same path. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe find someone who's better at the thing you want to accomplish than you are. And you're, you know, they'll help push you um, to help achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. So really be, be very self-sufficient, but also seek out, you know, um, seek out and surround yourself with, with other people that, that think the same way that think positively mm, fantastic um on a lighter note um tell us about a song that you like i hope it's going to be from <laughs> south america that <laughs> that you go to to put you in a good mood yeah um oh man my music if you looked at my my playlist i'm so all over the map but i'm oh, say, me too. like you yeah. really want to put me in a good mood uh put me on some like classic Buena Vista social club album. Oh, and I, yeah. I love to sing in Spanish. I love yeah. the fact that every time I do that, it's just kind of like, it's great. This is something that I've learned in life, a skill of this language. And it brings back all the positive memories of living yes. in Peru all those years of adventure. So you put on any type of like, you know, I love the, the classic Cuban songs and boleros and stuff. And, and uh, that'll always lift my spirits up. Oh, I love it. How about the traditional Peruvian music? El Condor Pasa. Uh, oh, no, fruit. man, that's one thing. <laughs> Ten years living in Peru, I've had about enough Condor Pasa to last me six lifetimes. <laughs> I've had enough of that. Oh, yeah. oh, no, but there's something about music that definitely brings you back to how you felt. Mm-hmm. Like unconsciously. Uh, so I lived in Italy for a year and my strategy was when I'm in the country, I listen to the music of the country. Yep. You know, yep. And I read in the country and then whatever I speak mm-hmm. And you listen to that, it's like, whoa, it takes me back. Uh, you, know, some, you know, it's like perfumes. You, you smell something, yeah. it reminds you. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Love this about music. For sure. Yeah, I mean, there was a few pivotal things like Manu Chow during that period was huge, you know, with the different languages. He's um, French, you know, Manu Chow. Yeah, French. So you're singing in French and English and Portuguese and Spanish. It was great. And then what was the, the single album? Uh, there was a classic salsa latin album called siembra mm-hmm. by willie um ruben blades and willie colon um that's quite pivotal in the kind of development of of the salsa music um and i learned so much spanish through those lyrics you yes. know i mean there's things that i'll still say mm-hmm. that come directly from the lyrics of that album siembra that i remember <laughs> buying in quito ecuador for like sixty thousand sucres when we, when that was still their currency so uh, yeah was one sucre equal one dollar? I think I remember. No, it was like you know, it was two thousand five hundred sucres was one dollar, and the next day it would be four thousand something yes. sucre for <laughs> one dollar. Now they're just back to dollars. So <laughs> cool. Uh, I'll look into that song. It, 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 I that's how I learned Portuguese when I was in Brazil. It's music ache, you know, music from the carnival, but not the the Rio Carnival. It's more the 
um, Salvador carnival music, mm-hmm. Ashe, it's not samba. Yeah, I love, I love it's the best way. I mean, you and now you nowadays you put it on YouTube, you put it with the subtitles, and you can totally yeah. learn a language by just music 100%. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I had I had a good friend, um, one of the guides I worked with, uh, Juanita de Agarte, who unfortunately passed away, drowned whitewater kayaking a few years ago. But uh, his English was classic, he learned it through watching uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and The Simpsons. <laughs> like his English came from that, so he was. You know, just a hilarious classic river guy, but his English, I mean, speaking with troops, he would, you know, <laughs> all these phrases from The Simpsons and from, from Schwarzenegger. And that, was how so he, cool. that was how he learned his English. Yeah. Hey, Clark, where can people uh, follow you or, or get to know you more? Sure. Um, I mean, everything's my name. I have my Instagram's Clark Catula, C-L-A-R-K-K-O-T-U-L-A. Um, and then my company website, clarkatula.com. And if you want some inspiration for different really cool lodges to go visit, you can do that. And uh, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Clark. Uh, we have to meet and uh, yeah, absolutely. And have more coffee and sure. just watch your, your kids uh, do a kite surfing, by the way, guys. So uh, Carter was uh, on the episode 26. That was Clark's son. So yeah. Uh, Fantastic family. I want to get to know more. Thanks so much, Clark. Let's do it. Okay. Thank you, Cyril. Have a great day. Thanks, Clark. Thanks all for listening. I'm your host, Cyril. And remember, life is an adventure. Live it. Great, man. That was fantastic. Hopefully it wasn't too long. You get me talking. Uh, Perfect. No, it's, it's organic. Whatever comes out, it's perfect. And it was great conversation. I mean, yeah, I want to to talk more about this because I think we have a lot in common. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Let's get together. Thanks. Have a beautiful day. Yeah. Same to you.